All right, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Very excited about this episode. My guest this week is Paul Roberts, uh, editor-in-chief over at securityledger.com, veteran award-winning journalist who has been around the block a few times and future mayor of Boston, future senator <laughs> of the great state of Massachusetts. Paul Roberts, how are you, buddy? I'm pretty good, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. I, I don't have an agenda uh, for this podcast. I just wanted to be wanted. We don't need an, you exactly. and I don't need an agenda, man. We can just yeah. talk. Yeah, usually I try to make notes and prepare and try to like be Mr. Professional with these. Um, although I never refer to my notes. Um, yes, you have. How old is Security Ledger now? Five years. Five years old. Security Ledger just passed its fifth anniversary. Uh, in, in October was the fifth anniversary of my first post on security ledger. I mean, I kind of got things rolling a little bit before that, you know, in, right. you know, uh, it's, it's fascinating to me to see the growth of this site and what you've kind of, the, the brand you've built around it. And I wanted, I wanted to, let's start there. You yep. jumped into this, uh, uh, personality-driven, one-man show journalism after leaving Threat Post, where I did. we worked together. Uh, yeah. Yes. Maybe, maybe we should go all the way back. You started Threat Post, man. I started Threat Post. It's, so the, I think you were the master. Like 11 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, wh- what was that decision like when uh, uh, you... Well, I mean, there were, as you know, many factors going into it, but I'd say... You know, and I think you're one of the smartest people around when it comes to like media, new media, and journalism, and so on. What what are you fishing for? Since you're bored, (laughs) listen, Ryan, I really need a little money. No, uh, and you, and I think evidence of that is you convincing the folks at Kaspersky to start Threat Post, which is really, I think, really the first of its kind, which was a objective news website that was corporate, entirely corporate owned, not just you know corporations advertised on it. Right. And um, then the challenge, of course, was to make sure that that independence was reflected in the work and not have one right. fight off interference, which never really existed. Uh, you know, every now and then something would pop up, but to fight that off and to maintain the credibility and, and, and independence of the content to uh, to really appeal to the audience. Because once the audience sees through that your uh, vendor-owned content is not as vendor-neutral as you pitched it, then you've lost the game. Um, Yes. And there's a natural tendency within companies, if you're being paid out of the marketing budget, which ThreatPost is and most or was and and most of these kind of company-owned sites are, there's a natural tendency at the company to say, well, you know, why aren't you doing marketing work then? You know, you should be promoting our products and promoting our executives and making us look like the best thing since, you know, sliced bread. Um, but to your point, you know, readers don't want to read that. And in fact, once they sense that they that you're no longer an impartial uh, source of information and news or that they're just getting marketing, then they're going to go elsewhere. Um, so, but I think the, the other big message of our time, and you and I both have spent a long time in publishing, is that, you know, the, um, you know, the tools of publishing have really been democratized now. You know, you don't need hundreds of thousands of dollars in startup capital to build a, a publication. Uh, and that brand is really important. And so part of the decision of starting Security Ledger, I think, was to have some independence, but also to invest in the brand of Paul Roberts and 
both have the freedom to pursue the stories that I wanted to pursue, which back then was folks starting to talk a lot more about Internet of Things and security, although we didn't really use the term Internet of Things as much. Um, and also just to, uh, you know, own the content, own the brand and just see what I could do with it. Um, you know, I'd had some experience as an analyst at 451 Group. Right, right. And that, and that obviously had to come in there. But listen, let's go back there because I think there's also a little bit of a, you're relying on the companies that you're writing about uh, mm-hmm. for your sponsorship and your advertising and for, for, for right. monetization uh, of, of, of what Security Ledger is. How do you keep that balance between the editorial integrity and the editorial independence? And, you know, uh, sponsor wanting to this, getting the companies you're covering are more or less funding the project. You understand? It's it's mm-hmm. it's a fine line. It is a fine line. I mean, it, of course, it's also a fine line at other publications that are nominally independent, right? Uh, pressure from advertisers, and even if it's not articulated, it's there. Um, I've been really lucky. I haven't. I think most, you know, technology companies who are by and large my sponsors and underwriters at Security Ledger are sophisticated themselves and get that, um, you know, uh, that you know people don't want to. Uh, read marketing material about their product that people come to a site like security ledger because they want real reporting and independent journalism. So I, I haven't had companies say like, Hey, you know, you wrote that article and it was critical of our technology and you know, how dare you, we underwrite you. That conversation has never happened. Um, And you're smart enough to turn away a a, a vendor who might be making certain demands that will, uh, you know, yep. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the grayer area is when, um, you are, um, you know, uh, collaborating with companies on things like reports or white papers and, and that is part of your business model, which it is definitely part of the security business, security ledger business model when you're doing events, which I've done and you've got sponsors for the event that you're providing access to and visibility to, um, there's there's no question that you know for people who are purists um and you know want have the sort of you know 1970s era washington post or new york times in mind where there's a very very high wall between editorial and and sales and business um you know th- those days are really <laughs> they're long know, gone i've spent i mean long gone. Yeah. they're they're long gone and i say they're long gone because i spent a year uh once threat post was launched fighting against those purists helping them yeah. to understand and you, know, you mentioned democ- democratization of of media and and this new approach to you, you can't get one and the other. You can't say, well, everybody gets to be their own publication. Oh, but you've got to have, you know, seven tiers of management and a huge wall between editorial and sales. And, you know, it, it just the, those. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, the, the reporters at the Boston Globe, they were union. They had a, they had a reporters union. They had jobs for life. Um, you know, that's just. Those days are gone. Uh, I think of it much more now like it's sort of the back to the days of like Thomas Paine and like the pamphleteers from like the 17th or 18th century, right? right? Where it's like if you had a if you had a printing press then like, man, you were a publication like you just, you know, you ran stuff off and and you were it was a very small organization 
you, your press, and maybe a couple people to help you. And I think small publications now, um, myself or Brian Krebs, or, you know, I mean, there are, there are a bunch of us, that's much more of the model. And, and, and you know, um, you do have to wear many hats. One of those hats is sales and marketing and business development. And that necessarily means getting your hands dirty in a way that people who grew up with the, um, you know, all the president's men as their model are going to find unseemly. But, you know, at the end of the day, no, but at the end of the day, those opinions doesn't uh, those opinions don't matter. The opinions that matter are the readers. And if the readers yeah. are coming and you're giving them the kind of content and quality journalism yeah. and reporting that they're looking for. They'll yep. go away if they find that it's it, it, of course. it's diluted, right. um, and that's so why Krebs is successful because he's 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 true to what he's doing, covering cybercrime. You're successful because you're true to what you're doing, and and the audience will see through it and go away. It, it, it's as clear as that, and that that's that's my argument ten years ago when we were creating threat posts and people were questioning the model and questioning whether we could be independent. It was like, well, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, uh, at the end of the day, no. the audience decided. Yeah, good reporting is good reporting is good reporting and doing, you know, having sources and doing good, you know, doing the footwork and breaking stories is valuable in and of itself. And you I mean, I think the reality, though, is if you're if you want to maintain your reputation as a brand and as a, you know, um, solid and respectable reporter uh, and you're running your own outfit, you do have to be prepared to say no to people or to push back and, and also just to walk away from money and say, well, you know, uh, I'm just not going to take that job because it just, it, it drags me too much into the mud. Um, and, and the audience uh, will see through it. The and the audience you, will see through yeah, it. The minute yeah, your shoes it, get that mud, they'll see it. That's right. And so for me, it's, it, you know, yes, you've got that, you hopefully have that, um, have that sense of just like, this is just going to look bad, you know, or this is just not, I don't want this on my site. This is just too commercial. I mean, if somebody wants to have a sponsored post, it's marked as a sponsored post and so on, then great. Um, but I'm not going to pass this off as news when it's just kind of touched up marketing. Um, so, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is a, it is a brave new world of uh, journalism and reporting. And I think in, in certain areas, cybersecurity being one of it, you can definitely make a go of it and, um, kind of forge your own path. And so I've been, it's been really fun to be able to do that. And, you know, five years in, I think I've learned a lot. I definitely made mistakes. Um, and I did some things right too. So, you know, no, I think you have a lot to be proud of, man. Uh, the, the, Thank you. The, the security ledger brand is, is legit. Uh, the quality, the work is legit, and the audience decides. At the end of the day, it's not about what you and I think, and you know, backslapping too yep. much. The audience decides, and the fact that you've—it's—it's <laughs> <laughs> it's straightforward, man. The results speak for themselves. What, did you make a, a concerted effort to uh, theme much of your content around IoT? I, and I know you covered a lot of other stuff, and you cover, but but it's it's kind of—and correct me if I'm wrong. From my, my standpoint, yeah. it's kind of seen as the IoT security site. I went out early writing about 
I mean, I think when I left Threat Post and started Security Ledger, one of the areas I wanted to focus on was security of connected devices, embedded systems, you know, connected vehicles, smart home appliances, and so on. Again, this was 2012, so it wasn't as evolved a conversation as it is today. It but I certainly it was yeah. toy heavy at the time. It was kind of toy, toy heavy. heavy. Yep. And and maybe a little bit around industrial control systems and SCADA and stuff like that. You know, people were starting. I mean, at Threat Post, I think I I wrote one of the first, if not the first, um, profiles of John Matherly and the Shodan search engine that was out there. Um, so that was starting to um, get attention. Um, so I picked that as an area of interest and focus. Um, on the was other it hand, being underserved at the time. Yes, I think it was. I think. People didn't really know what to make of it. And I think, you know, most of my peers writing about cybersecurity didn't, weren't really attuned to it. You know, it was and still it, much and, more. And people in the industry as a whole was dismissing, uh, oh, IoT is this fun toy-related yes. stuff that didn't have uh, 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 yes. serious ramifications for the security industry until we realized that all those legacy systems had to come online or were getting online. Uh, or you could or you could weaponize them that, you know, yes, in the in the individually a, a hacked webcam doesn't matter. But if you've got 150 or 500,000 hacked webcams, it's a it's a very powerful weapon. So, um, yeah, I don't I think you're right. People were dismissive of it back then. Um, you know, on the other hand, I didn't want to. Um, and I started a show called Security of Things. I, on the other hand, I didn't want to pigeonhole into this. Just I didn't want to guy. sort of right. I didn't want to sort of say, well, I'm actually going to make the whole brand Security of Things um, because I guess I don't know. I'd been around cybersecurity enough to know that topics get hot and then people move on. And I just didn't want to hitch my horse too much to that wagon because I, I figured that as a trend, it's an important one, but it's over time, you know. It'll just become part of the cybersecurity story anyway. That's right. That's right. Absolutely now, smart. in retrospect, maybe that was a mistake. I don't really know, but, but that was the thinking I had. So I wanted to both focus on security and internet of things. I got the security of things brand, um, and did a show around it and, and still have it. Um, but I wanted to keep security ledger as really a cybersecurity, uh, site that allowed me to talk about a lot of different things, not just security and IOT. What are some trends in the, uh, let's focus on the industrial IOT space. Um, yeah. Uh, what are some of the trends there that you're seeing, uh, interesting companies emerging to solve problems, um, some uh, maybe attack surfaces that mm -hmm. others have not yet seen that you haven't quite delved into and written about yet? What are some of the things that are top of your mind, stories you hope to be Well, writing, it's really interesting. I mean, when I was back at Threat Post, I started going to the S4 conference, which actually I think is just going on now or is just wrapping up down in Miami. But I was, I would think I went to my first S4 in, you know, 2010 um, or 2011 uh, when people like Billy Rios were there, you know, and it was, it was, it was crazy because the types of, you know, types of vulnerabilities they were talking about were, kind of, it was like you were going back to the mid nineties all of a sudden. I mean, just these just gross buffer overflow vulnerabilities and, you know, credentials just lying out open for people to use. And it was crazy. Um, and so I, I kind of was there when 
the industrial control space started to focus a little bit more on the types of things that I had been writing about for, you know, at that point, seven or eight years, um, just in the enterprise software space. Um, you know, fast forward seven or eight years, and you now have a whole slew of startups um, who really are trying to sell product into the industrial control space. And those are companies like, um, you know, Indigy is one. And I mean, there, there are a ton of them. Um, and so, you know, you, you get a bunch of, you get a lot of, um, you know, Mokana is certainly another one. I'm going to be mm -hmm. talking about it soon. Um, people are coming at it from different uh, vantage points. I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, the startups seem to be offering some form of behavioral analysis for uh, SCADA and industrial control networks. So ways just to spot uh, anomalies in SCADA protocols, you know, like Modbus and so right, on, right. that traditional traditional enterprise IT products aren't aren't designed to interrogate. Um, you know, you get um, folks who are working on more of the management uh, system part of it. So endpoint security around some of the management systems. Uh, you get people who want to do, you know, containerization. So there's a lot of different um, approaches. Yeah. Approaches. You know, the challenge, I think, is that industrial control systems and, and um, SCADA, that market is dominated by very large players. They're, they're really a handful of big vendors who sell most of that hardware and software. And um, it's a very different market than enterprise software. I think there are much longer sales cycles. And um, so it's it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out and whether uh, these companies can make a go of it because um, I think it is it is challenging. And, and, you know, there are just so many different uh, verticals that use this software. I mean, we saw that with Stuxnet. You know, it's it's not just one type of facility that's using Siemens controllers, right? I mean, they're used all over the place. They're like, mm. um, they're like switches or, you know, they're just a generic type of hardware and there are many different use cases for it. So the, the security vendors need to be thoughtful about that. One of the things that creeps me out is, and, and you know, you talked about Shoda, and, uh, just the enormous number of things that are exposed to the internet with open ports and if you follow Viz's uh, Twitter account and you'll see him screenshotting industrial control systems exposed yeah. with uh, ports wide open, you know, uh, default passwords. Uh, it's just, it, it really is scary and mind numbing. However, on the other side of the coin, you aren't seeing documented uh, attacks against these platforms. Two questions for you. Are people just not going after these things, or are these are there real world live attacks happening against these plants that are not being uh, one disclosed, two discovered by third party, you know, independent entities? It, it just seems like a a, a lack of balance between uh, exposed attack surface and real world documentation of actual attacks, or alternatively, which I think is is happening is a lot of these attacks are just being kept under the radar. There's a lot of these extortion type attacks. There's a lot of these mm -hmm. uh, uh, gas pipeline things where, you know, hackers get in, demand money uh, uh, in exchange for not causing any sorts of damage. Where is your head at as it relates to this massive, what we know is a massive exp 
exposed attack surface and not many documented attacks out, outside of a mm-hmm. handful stuxnet being the obvious big one and you know you you'll hear about a handful of attacks here and there but why aren't we yeah, doing I, more i think you're right i mean i i think there are a number of things right so I think historically, as you know, most of the cyber attacks out there are financially motivated. You know, most of it is criminal. Um, and so they're looking for a, you know, way to monetize whatever it is that they're doing. And um, historically, that's been hard with industrial systems because, um, you know, what are you going to, there's not credit card information on them. You know, the types of data they contain is very specialized, and not particularly useful in the cyber underground. Um, so... I think it's taken a while to figure out how you can make money by compromising those systems. Now, maybe with ransomware, um, it's become easier to do it. Um, and, and then, as you said, I, I think the other big piece is disclosure. And the reality is, um, at least in the U.S., there isn't, uh, there aren't hard and set rules around companies needing to disclose these types of attacks. So my guess is that yeah, there are a lot more uh, attacks and compromises going on. I'm sure with ransomware, you're seeing that as well. And we just don't know about it because um, the companies by and large have been able to um, keep them under wraps and contain them. They haven't become so obvious that they were noticed by the public because there was a you know loss of service or availability and so on. And some of it may some of it may be that, um, you know, the systems that we see exposed while dangerous looking are either test systems or are not actually um, cr- mission critical systems that... Or, or alternatively, yeah. maybe very, very hard to exploit. It's it, it, it's a lot right. easy for hackers to post a screenshot and say, oh my God, look at this being exposed. But writing an exploit for a very specialized piece of ICS software, That's right. as we found with, with, with Stuxnet, is it's not a... a you know, trivial thing to do. That's right. Or you saw with the, you know, the, in the Ukraine, you know, the attacks that happened in the Ukraine, you know, yes, you're right. In order to have to be so customized down to little components here and there. And then when they get implemented in, when this, when this software gets implemented in plans, they're customized down to the bone by entity to entity to entity that uh, exploiting it just might even be impossible. And there's that part of it as well. And you need somebody with domain expertise to help you do that. So you need somebody who understands how a water treatment facility works and what the equipment actually does to be even be able to do anything. So, you know, that limits the audience to or the the, um, threat landscape to nation state actors. That's 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 what I was going to say. That's why all the documented uh, cases are linked to very advanced adversaries. Right. And so the other the other possibility of course is that um many of these systems have been compromised and they're all uh, owned <laughs> they're all owned uh to, by each for, other to be, to be used later right <laughs> and to be used at a at a time and place of of somebody else's choosing whether that's or, china or russia or, or iran or whomever or never to be used just the mm-hmm. knowledge that you're on that i own you and there's nothing you can do about it is indeed you know might just be part of leverage in negotiations in you know. That's right. And we might assume that, you know, the U.S. government and, and our allies have have the same, you know, amount of uh, access to uh, critical infrastructure in other countries. Um, and, you know, we don't know this is spycraft and and, 
you know, necessarily we, we don't understand what they're up to or what they're doing, and they're certainly not going to share it. So I think the problem is um, that there clearly is a problem. There clearly are a lot of exposed systems. It's clear that you know, many industries, many critical infrastructure owners and operators have not done the job of securing and isolating those systems that they need to. But it's been very hard to 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 affect change and to, you know, kind of hold them to account for that. And that's like I'm sure you're frustrated by it. I'm frustrated by it. It's just, you know, I, I'm not sure that we've seen tremendous improvement in the last seven or eight years, even though our awareness of the problem is much greater. Now, you're a politician. You're like one <laughs> I of have. the most, politicians, <laughs> most amazing politicians I know. There is an IoT cybersecurity. I would ask around Belmont before you go. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm, 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 I'm blogging Belmont is kind of my go-to place to figure out how to do it at the local level. Uh, there is an IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act of 2017, which in, in, in theory is kind of uh, using the government's buying power to uh, mm -hmm. force basic levels of security around IoT devices sold here in the United States. And it's pretty basic. Uh, the, the, the requirements are, uh, where can I find it? At the very high level, it shouldn't have fixed or hard-coded credentials. It should have a way to update itself. Uh, right. There's just like four or five bullet points that they released in this bill. Uh, and it's just introduced kind of wending its way through the Washington uh, mud fest. Uh, yeah. Some quick thoughts on whether this can signal significant change to the security of IoT devices. Uh, do you think it kind of it's too basic and falls short. Have you, well, first of all, have you looked at it and, and have an opinion or I, thoughts on I it? I have, I have most, and, and I've talked about it on, on security ledger podcasts with some folks as well. Most of the people I I've talked about that thing one day, <laughs> you've got it. Go back and look. <laughs> most, most of the security people I've talked to smart people like Josh Corman, who is very much involved in putting that legislation together, um, are, are pretty bullish on the legislation itself. I think they think it's not perfect, but it's a really good start and that it it's targeting the right things. And obviously, while of course it is just affecting government contracts, of course the government is the largest buyer of software and services. So that, that actually will have a very big effect downstream in the market. I mean, it, the question is, as you said, this isn't law yet. This is just a proposed bill, and we've seen these before. There's there's bipartisan consensus that cybersecurity is an issue, but we're living in a time when our politicians just don't seem to be able to do what it takes to get important laws written, whether that's data privacy and data security, whether it's, you know, Internet of Things, whether it's children's health, uh, you know, Copa, chips, this old stuff chips and, mm -hmm. yeah, and all this other stuff, um, you know, they find ways to disagree with each other or uh, take their ball and go home. And so, you know, I'll, I'd say if they can if they can get out of crisis mode, which are seem to be going into again today with the, you know, the possible shutdown, if they can, if they can get from dealing with, you know, rolling crises, um, and actually sit down, uh, my guess is they can, 
they could certainly reach consensus about this and that it would have a beneficial impact. Um, it's not everything, but it would be a really good start. And it would certainly set the expectation that, you know, you're not going to be able to sell shoddy, shoddily written, um, unsecurable hardware and embedded systems and connected devices into the government and therefore into the public sphere. Right, because that, that, will, that will lead and guide buying uh, across the board. I, I want to dig into it a little bit because I don't quite understand the reason for being bullish about it. I understand why Josh would be bullish about it. He's just <laughs> been involved in really pushing this. And, and I applaud the work those guys have done. But it, it's it's basically four bullet points. Require vendors, uh, and this is requirement just for vendors uh, selling devices to the federal government. One, ensure their devices are patchable, solid, mm -hmm. solid. Rely on uh, uh, industry standard protocols. Meh. Do not mm -hmm. use hard coded passwords. Crucial, critical one, and do not contain mm -hmm. any known. Do not contain any known security vulnerabilities. So you you can't ship pre-owned or kind of uh, uh, products that are not vulnerable. But that's it. And then the rest of it is you know directing OMB to develop uh, uh, requirements and issuing guidelines and a lot of that. Bureaucratic stuff, but at a base level, they're not even demanding much here. They aren't, but um, so first of all, I mean, I think those or those am I too pessimistic? You can, yeah, you can yeah, yell I at mean, me if you want. These are, I think, you're right in th in saying or or saying these are small steps. Companies should be doing this anyway. This is, right. This this is this should be standard stuff. We shouldn't be requiring. If we're going to require things, we should require they have bug bounty programs. They're running uh, security assessments. They are paying for penetration testing. They are, you know, like mm -hmm. real stuff. This stuff isn't real. Well, software, you know, Josh and others talk about the software build of materials as well, which is, you know, we we should be able to just as, you know, when there's an airbag recall, right, you know exactly what, you know, makes and models of vehicles use that particular type of airbag. Similar with software, you know, if there's a open source library that has, a, you know, a, an exploitable vulnerability, we should be able to tell you immediately, more or less, well, what software is using that library, but we can't right now. Um, same idea. Uh, you're right. I mean, these are small steps. On the other hand, there are thousands of software products and vendors out there who don't even do this. And by saying these are the standards you need to be even be able to offer software to the federal government, you know, the largest buyer of software. Uh, you think it will you, filter down and force buying decisions you're gonna, across the you're board? Gonna push, you're going to push that down to, um, you know, potentially consumer products as well. And it just sets a, it sets a baseline of good behavior. You're right. I mean, it should, we should like have much more comprehensive guidelines that, you know, force people to comply with, you know, NIST, you know, standards or, um, uh, you know, get much more granular with um, what types of uh, security features you, you need to have. Um, right. I you think have, that at the very least, you should, you should have a, a security director in your company. A lot of these companies don't even have security folks. They're just software engineer building right. fun, interesting, really amazing things. But, yeah. you know, just going, well, and back, there going be... back 10, 15 years ago when we started writing about security and the issue of backporting fixes, uh, mm -hmm. We're 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 going to get to the stage where five years from now we're going to be scrambling to backport fixes for devices mm -hmm. that were not made uh, for the time. 
There are a lot of companies selling connected devices that are basically using the sort of the Bic lighter model, right? Which is, you know, you don't service it, you know, you just throw it away when it breaks, you know, or, or ends up with a exploitable vulnerability in it. And, you know, that's why you only paid 40 bucks for it, you know? Um, and I think there does need to be a message from regulators that, you know, that when you're talking about stuff that people are bringing into their homes, when you're talking about stuff that could be supporting safety or life critical um, functions um, or conceivably could be used to cause physical damage or harm or invade people's privacy, that that's just not acceptable, that you need to be able to have, you know, if you're making this and, and profiting from it, you need to have a commitment to managing it over the long term and and um, helping keep your customers safe from cyber attack or, or even worse. Um, but we don't, we're not having that conversation yet. And so the, the, the main driver for connected devices is really, you know, be first to market, you know, time to market and, and try and get out there quickly and sell as many, you know, widgets as you can. And, and so there just isn't a lot of focus on security. So, but, there, but, but there's also opportunity for companies to get it right and use security and use maturity in your security software uh, uh, creation, uh, uh, like real security maturity around all your engineering efforts as a differentiator and as a way to attract buyers. Yeah, and, but I don't think anybody pays for it. But nobody pays for it. Nobody's no. going to pay for security. No. I think we've seen I, people, consumers, certainly, I don't know Consum about Not business, only consumer business side, space. business space. Yeah. Consumers yeah, don't care. Then. They don't care if their camera is being set. I mean, you they can go online don't. and look at people's cameras all day. It's yeah. I, you know, um, I I think that you know certainly business cares more about security now, but but business is certainly susceptible to sort of check checkbox thinking and and you know does it have these features? It does. Okay, great. You know, we're satisfied as opposed to really having a deep interest in security. You know, as you know, uh, you know, financial services companies do, or defense industrial based companies do. You know, right. where it's not—it's not merely a okay. Do you have these features? Okay, do you use encryption? Great. Okay, sure. That's um, so, you know, you you need to. I think in some cases, as you know, we saw with you know automakers and seatbelts and airbags, um, you do need to compel companies to do the right thing, and then once they do, they figure out ways to turn it into a a saleable feature and a, right. and, a, so and a, look at something that they right. can. Yeah. When you look at car ads on TV, safety and security is a big advertising uh, differentiator. That's right, but those same car companies scream bloody murder about seatbelts because they were saying, "Well, no, you know, cars are, you know, consumers buy cars because of freedom and fun, and they're products that they associate with being free and going out and seeing the world. And if you make them put belts on, they're going to think about accidents, and that's going to—they're not going to want to buy cars because they're going to think that they're, you know, they might get in accidents with them. I mean, that was the argument of at the time, no, right. you know, at the time." We look back on that now, and it's farcical. But that but kept seatbelts out of cars change, for right? like two or three decades. That type of that type of industry resistance, and you know, so you know, I, I it's the same thing, right? I mean, industries are always going to find excuses not to want to be regulated. Yeah. You just need a a good kind of public policy and public health um, 
counter voice, focused counter voice to say, nope, you know, you just need to do this because it's the right thing to do and because we know it'll work. And, you know, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're not there yet. So that's why you're, you're, you're in the optimistic camp that it's a start. It's, it's better than nothing. This bill. If it passes, I'm well, optimistic the, that well, the me, bill will do good things. Wait. I'm pessimistic that they'll actually pass it. Wait, that, that was going to be my next question. And this is the last question on this bill and this legislation because this stuff bores me. Um, and and I'm, I'm mindful of boring. <laughs> I'm, I'm mindful of boring my the, the, the three people who listen to this podcast. But Can we talk what? about Tom Brady's right hand after this then? Right, don't start. <laughs> don't start. Enough. <laughs> Enough with the pads. Um, what ha, what happens next? The, the bill was introduced, bipartisan bill, uh, Senator Warner and Gardner co-chairs the Senate Cybersecurity Caucus. Bill gets introduced. What's the what what's what's like an acceptable timeline to see some result? Help educate me on how these things work. Right. Well, so you need a companion. Uh, don't bill. bore me. Yeah, you need a companion bill on the House side, and I can't recall if there. I'm, I'm showing my ignorance here. I can't recall if there is a companion bill on the House side. Um, it's possible that the House could just adopt and pass the Senate's version of the bill, but that hardly ever happens because you have different people and different interests. And so, um, you know, what needs to happen is you need you need bills in both the House and Senate. They need to then. Um, pass them and then go into in in each body and then go into um, conference to reconcile the differences, come up with a, a compromise bill and then pass that through both co- both houses and then it can go to the president. Um, that takes yeah, so, on average. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, and again, it doesn't. It never happens overnight. This no. and and this, you know, uh, an Internet of Things. Bill is very low on the agenda. I'm guessing, but I'm I'm guessing like a, a, the, both bodies have their staff working on it. It's it's a priority yes. for someone down the line. So it could happen legislatively in 2018. I mean, what we tend to see happen with these, like you said, is they're low priorities. They drop to the bottom of the list. They get pushed out by other things that need to happen, like the budget or, you know, defense authorization or what have you, or you know, funding the government. And so they drop to the bottom of the list and eventually they just get kicked to the next year. And that's right. what happened again and again with this stuff. It could happen again this year or they somebody could say, no, I think we can actually carry this over the over the goal line. Let's get it done. But we shall see. And I'm not it's, you know, the more dysfunction there is, the more wrangling and discord there is, um, the well, less could likely. be wrangling and discord on something this basic and this important? Well, there, there isn't, but there's wrangling and discord about, about a bunch yeah, of other issues. Yeah. So that just keeps them from, from doing anything, really. So, you know, if they shut down the government, obviously, then nothing's going to get done while the government's shut down. And so that just, you know, you're running more time off the clock. And it gets less, you know, the the calendar becomes more and more compressed because these guys go on break like every other week. And, you know, it just it just narrows the window with which there is time to, you know, get these things passed, find a compromise, get that passed. You know, so we'll see. I'm not, you know, I I mean, (laughs) you know, we can't pass a real infrastructure bill or a highway bill. You know, we there are just so many things that are not getting done. It just it makes me we pessimistic. Get, I told you we got to get you to be Senator Paul Roberts from the great state of Massachusetts. 
<laughs> I don't know. Start getting things done. We'll see. So we'll what, see. what what's next for Security Ledger? Um, it's a busy year, I must say. It's um, you know we uh, we we're bringing on new sponsors. We got you know Flashpoint on as a sponsor, which is wonderful. And um, uh, are you product placement? Cyber Cyber are you doing product placement? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being thankful to the companies who <laughs> underwrite. Go so, ahead, go ahead, drop your names. I, you know, we're going to. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm continuing to um, develop the Security Ledger podcast, and and we're focusing a lot of our energies on that. Obviously, we got RSA coming up just around the corner, and we'll be doing some stuff at RSA. I, I'm gonna, you know, I think it's um, uh, deeper rather than broader this year, and I am gonna try and really narrow the focus of what I'm writing and reporting about kind of pick a few topics and go deep on those rather than broad. So I think editorially that maybe is going to be some of what you'll see. Um, and um, probably some new voices and some new folks writing. We got Liz Monobano writing for us from uh, Europe. And um, so you might see some some different bylines on Security Ledger as well. Awesome. I'm rooting for you, my friend. Thank you. I know you are. And all I'm rooting the, for you. All the very best. We'll talk. All right, Brian. Take care. <laughs>